good morning, beloved. Morning. It is good to see all of you here on this kind of cloudy and rainy day, but what do we expect in autumn? This is the season for the changing of seasons. So we're going from beautiful summer to beautiful winter. <laughs> Some of you are skeptical, I know, I can hear you. Well, we are also coming to the end of our series in Isaiah, and we began this just after Easter, back there in April, and it's it's been kind of a short series. I said at the very beginning that I wasn't intending to go through every chapter and every verse, but we would kind of bounce along at some of the high points and point out, point out some of the landmarks in this book with the hope and the expectation that you will dig into it a little bit more yourself. And uh, one of the things that I think might be helpful to uh, your Bible study if you're, you're doing that, and I hope that you are, but something that might be helpful is to read a translation different from the one that you typically read. Compare the two of them. And, and sometimes just that different way of saying something will stimulate some of your thinking and the Spirit of God will open your heart and you, you just might get a little uh, different understanding. So. If, like me, typically I use the New King James Version, uh, maybe English Standard Version, or the Holman Christian Standard, two very good translations would be helpful to you as you pursue some of your own study of the Word of God. And really, that's when it's best. Uh, I love to preach, I love to teach, I love to be able to share what God has revealed to me. Um, but for you, that's like getting warmed up leftovers, you know? Um, I'm the one that had the original interaction with the Word, and, and I'm, I'm happy to share, but, you know, you can also get in there and do some study on your own and, and learn and grow and really see what God has for you in His Word. It's, uh, it's an amazing process. Well, we need to review just a few things since this is our last Sunday in Isaiah. Uh, one of those things that we need to review is the function of the Old Testament prophet and also of even the New Testament pastor. One of the things that they were supposed to be doing, which Isaiah does frequently in his book, is to identify the sin of the people, to call them out on what it was they were doing, and to call them to repentance. That's why God sent the prophets. God did not send the prophets only to announce doom and destruction. He sent the prophets first and foremost to invite the people to come back to the relationship that they claimed to have with God. Their prophet came to encourage the people to look at their lives and see the difference between how they were living and what God's standard was and to repent so that, number three, they could enjoy God's blessing and favor. That was their primary purpose. And that's why pastors all across the nation opened the book Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, they read it, they present it, they call all of God's people 
to a new and vital relationship with Him so that we can enjoy the very best that God has for us. That's the purpose. But what happens if we don't listen to that calling? Well, that brings us to the fourth function of the Old Testament prophet. He did announce doom and destruction. Because, beloved, there's always a price to be paid for ignoring God. Always a price. We can't get by with what we think we want. We are created by God. We are called by God. God expects us to live in a way that honors and pleases Him. And when we say, God, I'm not going to do it your way, what we're saying is yes to the consequences of disobedience. So really, when the Old Testament prophet stood up to bring his message, behind all of it was an expression of God's mercy and grace and willingness to forgive. And when the pastors here in this New Testament period bring the Word of God, it's for that same purpose. To confront us, to challenge us, to remind us that there are consequences of obedience and disobedience so that we might choose obedience. So that we might choose to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might receive that gift of eternal life that God wants us to receive. The structure of the book, the first 35 chapters, the primary emphasis was on judgment because of their sin, and yet, mixed in with that, were glimpses of hope. In chapters 36 through 39, we focused on King Hezekiah, and he kind of becomes a living illustration of all of those things. Hezekiah, you remember, was, conf <clears throat> excuse me, was confronted with problems in his life. There were threats from the Assyrian Empire. And Hezekiah did the right thing. He took the threats, he took the letters, he went into the temple, he spread it out before God, he poured out his heart in repentance, he cried to God for mercy, and God gave him mercy. God delivered Israel, or delivered Judah and Jerusalem from the hand of the Assyrians. But then Isaiah became a little cocky, didn't he? He became a little self-satisfied. He started to look around, and he saw all the blessings that God had given him, and he began to think, oh, I deserve these things. These are my things. And it says, you remember, we looked at that passage in 2 Chronicles where it said, he did not return a proper recompense for the blessing he received. You know, God blesses you and me, doesn't he, with tremendous blessings. Are we grateful? Are we thankful? Do we take what God gives us and use it for his glory? Or do we just squander everything on ourselves and we think that, well, yeah, of course God did this because he owes me. We, we have the wrong attitude toward that. It's a trap that all of us can fall into. All of us can fall into it. From chapter 40, though, all through the end of the book, 
The primary emphasis is on comfort. It's on a future hope. And yet, sprinkled in along the way are some little reminders of judgment. Some little goads, little prods that are designed to keep us focused on Jesus Christ. You see, Jeremiah understood it very well. He understood the human heart. He said that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He answers the question in the next verse. He says, well, God answers it. He says, I, the Lord, try the hearts. Even the best of us, even the best of us, are tempted, aren't we, to turn from God. We're tempted to do our own thing. We're tempted to think that we've arrived. We're tempted to think that God really owes us something or that God really got a bargain when he got me because I'm really special. And that's what the world tells us, isn't it? You're special. You're wonderful. There's nobody like you. Here, have a trophy. You haven't done anything, but have a trophy anyway. That, I mean, that's what the world tells us. It builds us up into this false sense of who we are. And that's when pride causes us to fall. Isaiah, as he preaches this message, as he enters into this ministry of, of prophetically confronting the nation of Israel, is doing so at a time of their great prosperity. And remember, chapter 40, at, at the time of Isaiah's writing of all this, Chapter 40 and all the rest of it hadn't even begun to happen yet. All that was fulfilled, at least partially so, after the Babylonian captivity. They began to return to their homeland, began to return to Jerusalem. And yet not all of it has been fulfilled. There are still things that are going to happen, and we're going to look at some of those things today. We're going to start actually in chapter 62. Remember in 61, last week we looked at those first couple of verses and we saw thousands of years of human history there. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stopped reading because that was the part that applied to his first coming his original ministry here on earth, where Jesus Christ came and taught us about God, where he did all that God required of him. He offered his life as a perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sin. He died, he rose again, and ascended into heaven. That was all that first little bit of Isaiah. This hasn't happened yet. And the day of vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth and he deals with all of the wickedness and all of the sin and he establishes his thousand year kingdom of righteousness, which is just a prelude to eternity, which is what's pictured for us here in verse 3, to console those who mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, and so forth. That's the millennial kingdom. That's that prelude to eternity that God is going to establish here on this earth. And at the end of that chapter, 
It says in verse 11 and 61, So the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And he goes on in 62 with that same theme. For Zion's sake, and this is the Lord speaking, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a lamp that burns. Beloved, you and I know instinctively, in fact, every person in this world knows instinctively that we are moving toward a goal. God is active in this world. He is active in this world today. He is not holding His peace. He is not being silent. God is actively moving behind the curtains of history, behind the scenes, but actively moving, directing the course of this world to that one great moment when Jesus Christ returns and sets foot on this earth. And you're a part of that. Did you know that? You get up in the morning and you think, oh, I have to go to work today and I have to do this and I have to do, go to school and this and that and the other thing. And today is going to be like yesterday and tomorrow is going to be like today. And this is just the humdrum of life going on and on, and boy, I look forward to the weekend when I can do something. You think that this is just an ordinary day. Oh, beloved, I wish we could see it for just a moment from God's perspective. Because this is not an ordinary day. God is at work in the world. And you and I have the privilege of in prayer, being a part of what God is doing. Do you pray, as Paul said to Timothy, pray for those who are in authority over you. Do you pray for President Biden? For Vice President Harris? Do you pray for our congressmen? For our Supreme Court justices? Do you pray for our state leaders and our local leaders? Do you pray for them? Do you intercede before the living and almighty God on their behalf? That moves the world. You pray for the salvation of people that you know. Maybe a family member. Maybe a friend. Maybe a co-worker. Maybe a friend at school. Do you pray for them? You know, you can talk to them till you're blue in the face and you'll never persuade them. But if the Spirit of God moves in their hearts and brings conviction to their souls, they'll be saved. And God may use you as a part of that process and it begins with praying for them and it continues with faithfully witnessing. You and I are part of what God is doing in this world as He is moving it toward that great day when Jesus Christ returns and sets foot on the earth. I hope that gives you a different perspective on these dull, boring days. Whether you're at work, making widgets, whether you're pushing papers, wondering if any of this makes any sense to anybody, no matter what you're doing, it's not dull. It's not humdrum. It's not boring. I will not keep silent, God says, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name 
which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah. Now, if you're looking for two names for kids, there's two for your uh, consideration. There will only be one of them in the class. Okay? The word Hephzibah means one who is chosen, one in whom there is delight. And the word Beulah means marrying. So get the picture. Israel is going to go from desolate and forsaken to one in whom the Lord delights and who is married to the Lord. What a beautiful picture. Verse 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, a, a bridegroom just absolutely loves his bride and they are united together and, and it's a, an inseparable bond. And so it will be with the children of Israel and, and Jerusalem, the, the throne, the location where God will dwell. There will be a bond there that will never be broken. Oh, it's been broken in the past, hasn't it? We know Israel's history. We've read the front part of the book. And, and it's been an up and down thing, but that's not going to continue forever. God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. And it's going to be culminated. It's going to be consummated. It's going to be brought together and become a reality. Because God is the one who is doing it. God is the one at work. Verse 6, I've set my watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. I don't know why God does it this way. He's already promised that he's going to do it, right? And then he says to these watchmen, you keep bugging me about it till I get it done. That's Roger's paraphrase. <laughs> Okay? You, you keep bringing this up to me. Make it a matter of urgency. Make it a matter of prayer until this comes to fruition. Does God need to use us in the process of Him doing anything? Not at all. He's the one in Genesis who spoke the word, let there be light, and there was light. Didn't have to form a committee. Didn't have to found a power company or anything like that. God just simply spoke the word and there it was. He doesn't need us. But he's delighted to include us. To have us to be a part of what he's doing in this world. The Lord has sworn by his right hand, verse 8, and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food to your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. No longer is Israel going to be trampled down and be treated unjustly and unfairly but they're going to be able to enjoy the fruit of their labor. So verse 10, go through the gates. Go through, prepare the way for the people. Build up, 
Build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up the banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed in the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. We don't see it in, in uh, English in verse 11, but it's a little more clear in, in the Hebrew in verse 11. I think there's a play on words here that might reveal the name of this deliverer, of this Messiah. And it's found in verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your yashat, the word there is salvation. It's the very same root from which the Hebrew word Yeshua comes. Do you recognize it? Jesus. There might be a little prophetic sort of play on words here even revealing the name, certainly revealing the character of the Messiah. He is the one who saves. It says, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, His. We're talking about a person here. A person of salvation who is salvation itself. That's none other than Jesus the Messiah. The one you and I call Lord. His reward is with him and his work before him. Jesus is at work today accomplishing his purpose. We don't always see it on any given day, but we know from what he has told us that he is moving toward his preordained goals. His salvation is coming. And you say, well, my goodness, how does that all come? Well, it comes unexpectedly. It comes unexpectedly. You know, for centuries, the church, the, the broad church, kind of thought that, you know, the gospel's going to go out and things are going to get better and better and better and better and, and everybody's going to learn to love each other and peace is going to break out all over the world and then Jesus is going to come. And, and it'll be so wonderful. And that was taught and is still taught in many churches today. But it's wrong. The gospel is going to go out and individual lives are going to be changed. But the vast majority of humanity is not going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're going to continue in their rebellion against Almighty God. Which is why when He does come and He does set foot on the Mount of Olives, the whole world is gathered there to oppose Him. It's not because the gospel has gone out and transformed everybody and made it safe for Jesus to come. Oh no. This is going to happen by means that we don't quite comprehend. And so chapter 63 opens that door for us. Here's a question. Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Here's the picture. Here is 
someone, I think it is the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it refers back to verse 11 of the previous chapter, your salvation who's coming with his reward, it's talking about the Messiah. Who is this Messiah? Who is this deliverer coming with salvation? Who is this person? What is he like? What does he do? How will we know him? He's coming from Edom. Now Edom was the land to the east of Jerusalem, east of Israel, and it was populated by descendants of uh, the Jewish people, or, or relatives I should say, populated by the sons of Edom, or of um, Esau, sometimes it's called Edom. So these are near relatives. And those near relatives of the Jews had a terrible, terrible relationship with their cousins. And when the Babylonians came years before, or, well, it gets a little confusing. They come after Isaiah's time, but he's writing as though it has already happened. It's the prophetic past. When the Babylonians come and they capture Jerusalem, the Edomites will cheer and they will rejoice and they will egg the Babylonians on and they will also be responsible for the murder of those Jews who flee from the Babylonians and try to find refuge in other parts. In other words, these Edomites here and the city of Basra, their chief city, become emblematic of all of the enemies of God. And God's going to deal with them. So who is this that's coming up from Edom? His garments are dyed. Verse 2, it says they are red. Your garments, like one who treads in the wine press. Now, you know, we don't really know too much about that in this country. Maybe you've seen pictures or whatever, particularly in Italy where they, you know, the ladies get their skirts all hiked up and they're stomping around in the wine vats there and smashing out the grapes. I don't know if I want toe jam in my, you know, that's pretty nasty stuff, but you know, that's, that's, that's what happens. And the grapes splash and splatter and, and it's everywhere. But this isn't grape juice. This is the blood of God's enemies. This is the blood of God's enemies. You see, the moment of mercy and grace and forgiveness has passed. And now, there's going to be judgment. Now there's going to be retribution. Jesus came the first time. You remember how Zechariah 9.9 described it? Behold your king coming, gentle, meek, sitting on the colt of a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. He comes in like a king at peace, offering peace, offering reconciliation. In this picture, in Isaiah, that's not how he comes. Now he comes in judgment. Now he comes with retribution. Now is the day of vengeance of our God. That's why Jesus stopped in the earlier portion of Scripture that we read where he did. Because the first coming was to bring peace, to offer salvation. The second coming 
is to bring judgment. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. This is Jesus responding. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. In other words, God is pouring out his wrath on his enemies and the enemies of his people, the Jews. Well, they have endured much, haven't they, through the centuries? It's incredible. I'm reading an amazing book. It's called, And They Came For Me. It's the biography of a fellow named Martin Niemöller, who was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor during the Second World War, who was instrumental in opposing Hitler, spent eight years, eight years in various concentration camps because of his opposition to Hitler. It's a fascinating book. And of course, along the way, it, it makes mention in those concentration camps of the number of Jews who were killed. Over six million were exterminated. God's people, God's chosen nation has endured such horrific attack from the nations of the world. We can't attack God directly so we can attack His promised people, His chosen people. But one of these days, that's going to come to an end. And God is going to vindicate His people. He's going to save them. They're going to be redeemed. They're going to look up as Jesus is coming and they're going to see one whom they have pierced and they're going to mourn for him as an only son and, and they're going to weep. And Zechariah chapter 12 talks about that and they're going to weep for him and, and all the descendants of David over here and all the descendants of this group over here and their wives are separated and they're weeping because of what they they. They knew, but they didn't respond to it. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is here. And yet, he opens that fountain of life for them. And a nation is born in a day. A nation is born in a day. And they become what God has always wanted them to be. Since the day that he called Abraham out of the city of Ur to be a light to be the display of God's glory, of His mercy, of His grace, of His forgiveness, of His compassion, to be a display of all of God's glory to the whole world. But it's not going to happen because necessarily they all want it to. It's going to happen because God says it's going to happen. It'll take place. I want us to take a look at Roman, or excuse me, Revelation chapter eleven, and we're going to see this from the same perspective that the Apostle John saw it from. Who is this that comes up from Edom and from Basra, whose garments are stained with blood? Verse eleven of chapter nineteen. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now that's you and me. That's the church. That's the bride that in the earlier part of the chapter had made herself ready and was clothed with bright linen. And we're coming, we're descending out of the skies with the Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the returning Messiah, the glorious one, to the place where he will establish his kingdom. Notice what else it says. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the one doing this. He is wreaking vengeance on his enemies. And he is saving and redeeming his people. And we are watching. We are watching. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow. <laughs> When Jesus Christ returns to this earth, it will be a bloodbath. And it will be absolutely righteous because they will have been the ones who have arrayed themselves together with the beast, the Antichrist. They will desire nothing except to oppose God. And they will be gathered there to do that very thing. And Jesus Christ will bring an end to it all. Uh, I wish we had more time to finish off the rest of Isaiah. I'll let you read that. Chapter 65 and 66 talk about the worship that will take place as a result of God's righteous deeds and righteous judgment and how He will make a distinction between those who are His and those who have rebelled against Him. But beloved, I want us in closing to remember the point of all of this and to bring it right home to where you and I are today. The reason that God reveals these things, even these horrible things, even these things that we think are repulsive to us, the reason He reveals them to us now is so that we might believe them and turn and repent, that we might be saved that we might put our faith in this one who is coming 
Jesus, the Messiah, and be redeemed, be delivered from the coming of the wrath of God. That's why Jesus came to this earth. That's why He died on the cross. That's why He took the eternal wrath of God the Father upon Himself so that you and I would not have to. He shed His blood for you and for you and for me the first time He came. And if we trust in Him, we will not have to worry about His return. We will not have to live in fear. We will be like Isaiah, who cries out in that previous... Well, let's look at it here real quick. Who cries out and says, Oh, that the heavens, that you would rend the heavens in verse six, uh, chapter 64, that you would come down. We would be like the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, who says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Because we have a right relationship with Him. But do you? Do you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there ever been a time in your life when you've thought about eternity and you've thought about yourself and you've said, I'm not perfect. God requires perfection and I'm not perfect. If He were to show up today, I, I wouldn't make it. Has there ever been a time when you've recognized the reality of your own spiritual situation and cried out to God for mercy? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because He will. Remember, that's why He went looking for Adam in the garden after Adam's sin. That's why He sent Noah with a message of righteousness. To a world that was awash in iniquity. That's why he sent Moses and Isaiah and Joshua and all of the prophets and all of the, the good kings like David. That's why he sent them with the message that he sent them and gave them to confront people, to realize their spiritual condition and their need, and to turn to him in repentance. Why? Because there is coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return and He's going to bring judgment. We either are reconciled to Him now and avoid that, or we throw Him aside now and we meet Him in judgment. The choice is yours. Don't make the wrong choice come to him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is clear. And Father, I pray that this message is clear. And that your spirit will take your word and drill it down deeply into our hearts. And that Father, we would respond with repentance and thankfulness for the salvation that you have so freely prepared for us. Lord God, you have done everything to make salvation available to us. 
and it is your free gift. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today that has never received Christ as their Savior, that they will not leave this building without considering what they've heard and crying out to you for mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. Father, you delight to forgive. You delight to make your enemies your children. It's not by any works that we've done. It's not by anything that we deserve. It is all because of your grace. So Lord, please help us to receive that grace, to receive that forgiveness, so that we have the joy, the hope, the confident assurance of eternal life with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together this morning. And we commit ourselves to your care. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We